It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there and welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says one singular sensation. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. So, uh, you guys, how is it possible that we've gone this long with a forward-thinking, futuristic podcast and not really touched upon the singularity. I mean, it, we, we've joked about it a couple times. We're clearly slacking. Uh, they say it's near. Yeah, well, yeah, depending upon whom you ask, it, it's, <laughs> it's going to be um, like any day now. So we thought it's high time we actually take a look at the singularity, talk about what is this idea of the singularity? What does it mean? What do people who are super duper smart have to say about it on one side or the other and kind of, I guess, ultimately kind of give our own opinions about what we think, keeping in mind that we are um, not futurists in the strictest sense of the word. This is more about how we kind of feel about things because we're, we're not computer scientists. We're futurians. <laughs> we're futurologists <laughs> is what we are. Future rangers. 
So, yeah. um, yeah. So let's, let's get started. Let's, let's talk about what the singularity is. So what the heck is it? You know, I think in the popular consciousness, when you mention the singularity, they're aware that it has something to do with technology and something to do with the future. But other than that, it's just kind of this vague mental piece of stock art where there's some wavy lines and a picture of like a brain and, and some electricity. Right. Yeah, maybe maybe brains suddenly going up into uh, dis- uh, disappearing into ones and zeros and joining a giant cloud of them or something. Yeah, so it, I think the general understanding of it is fairly vague. And so I'd like to narrow that down and focus it on what does this mean in the most basic technological sense? And what I'd say is that it's usually used to mean a time when humans develop superhuman intelligence through some means or right. another whether by creating artificial intelligence or by amplifying their own intelligence or somehow or other stumbling on an intelligence greater than that of what humans are normally capable right and often they also go further into saying that in this world where we have developed superhuman intelligence we will we we in the present right now will be unable to kind of predict what that future is going to look like because we won't by, even be able to recognize it. Yeah. By our very nature, by our limited human intelligence, we cannot conceive of what that future will be. It's impossible. It's beyond our our what our limitations are, are around us. So. Right. Well, the idea also tends to involve not just a stasis, like we reach a point of a plateau of very high intelligence, but it involves this idea of a vast acceleration in learning and improvement. Right. So right. Ed- educational spaghettification. Yeah. Or a Moore's law that applies directly to how smart we are so that we're constantly getting smarter than we were earlier. And it just keeps except that instead of Moore's law, which is steady, you have, you know, you have this this uh, this doubling growth, but it's a steady doubling growth. In the singularity, in at least some versions of it, it's an exponential or or logarithmic growth to the point where, uh, you know, it's you're not only getting smarter, but you're getting smarter faster. Right. And in that sense, it's sort of a double impossibility for us to understand what it will be like. It's not only smarter than we can imagine now, but it's getting smarter faster than we can imagine now. Right. So there are, uh, generally speaking, four different agreed upon ways that this singularity could come about. Uh, these are, are proposed by a science fiction writer. And uh, mathematician. And mathematician. Vern, my buddy Vern. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't, I don't actually know Vern Revenge, but anyway, he's, uh, he's got, uh, this, uh, idea, he had this idea where he, he kind of proposed four ways that we could reach this superhuman intelligent future. And these are four pathways that are not necessarily completely um, isolated from each other or compartmentalized. We may see some weird um, combination of different paths that lead us to this, assuming that the singularity is indeed something we are going to hit at some point, time or another. Okay, what are they? So you got superhuman intelligent machines. This is the artificial intelligence route. I think this is like the most classic sense that people would imagine the most. It's just saying like developing computers that are beyond human capabilities. Yeah, the idea being that you would be able to build a computer so sophisticated that it could design the next generation of computers much better than any human could. And that next generation of computers could design the next generation of computers better than the predecessor could, and so on and so forth. And that Each one time, creating a, a level way beyond anything that we can even understand. Right, and faster, too, so that you know the, the time between generations gets to a point where there's no longer... You can no longer say this is generation one, this is generation two. It'll just be 
meaningless to ask the question because it's constantly changing. Yeah, that rapid optimization is all often called the intelligence explosion. Yes. Uh, and so next we have the idea about computer networks themselves gaining some form of sentience or intelligence. Now, this is one that I've heard a few different philosophers and computer scientists talk about the kind of idea that with any uh, network of information exchanging nodes that's complex enough, you could have consciousness arise. So in other words, if you had enough information exchanging nodes in a complex enough system, then it would end up mirroring what our brains do with our neural pathways. And because uh, in the argument of these people, consciousness is itself a, phys- a manifestation of these physical connections in our and brains. An emergent manifesta- manifestation. Yes, that that would in fact emerge in these synthetic networks. Uh, one of the things here would be to consider whether or not a system like this could have executive control of some kind. Yeah. Like if you imagine the Internet today as a brain, well, that is a brain or a mind, whatever you want to call it, that is both has more intellectual capability and has more knowledge than any other thing that exists. But it it has no executive at the top of it. There's nobody controlling the Internet to say, now think about this. Well, if you consider that the Internet's a crazy cat lady, it makes perfect sense. (laughs) It's it's the question of whether a flock of birds really knows where it's going or just if each individual bird is... uh... Uh, doing what it does. Yeah, our school of fish, this kind of thing, mm-hmm. where you see these behaviors that are, are fascinating. Uh, and uh, on the surface, they start to really perplex people. It's what you have to really dig down to understand how they work. Well, next, we've got the idea of computers and humans getting all buddy-buddy. Okay, so this is this is also ties into the stock art, right? It's like a human brain with like a computer chip on it and yeah. electricity shooting out. Or a, gi- <laughs> a giant wind-up key sticking out of the human's back. Right, yeah. right. I come yeah. from a different school than you guys. So, uh, yeah, this is the idea that we have computer and human intelligence merging into some form of new entity. So a lot of, not all, but a lot of the singularity uh, models that we'll talk about include this idea of transhumanism, where humans evolve beyond what we are now. We become a new species, either because we've merged with machines uh, in this way, where where we've incorporated machine intelligence into our human intelligence in a, in a very you know organic way. I guess it's kind of weird to say organic, but that's kind of what they're talking about. Or we create something that's uh, like a superhuman intelligent machine that then changes us <laughs> so that we're no longer human in the, the way we would think of now. Yeah. And in that way, it's easy to see how some of these different uh, pathways could overlap. Yeah. Like first you design, say, just an, a classical AI, like a super intelligent machine that's a computer. But that machine that's a computer tells you exactly how to modify your body with cybernetics that allow you to go in this hybrid state to right. the singularity. Exactly. This this is also the option, I think, where a lot of nanobots tend to come in, our good old buddies, the nanobots. Yeah, the idea of like uh, uh, <laughs> sort of fortifying your body, you know, make sure you have your vitamins, your minerals and your nanobots because the nanobots will continuously uh, upgrade you. Uh, that isn't one of those popular ideas in science fiction. It's also one that, uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about nanotechnology in the past. and We'll talk a lot more about it in future episodes, but it's complicated stuff. Uh, question. All yeah. these involve computers. Is there a way we could achieve super intelligence without computers? This is the Frankenstein method. Okay. So yes, uh, through, through 
pure application of medicine and science, we can create a superhuman. This is starting to sound a little scary in a way, but yeah, we're talking bioengineering. As opposed to the rest of them with Skynet, Skynet was totally fine with you. Look, this one is scary. I'd like to say that I, for one, welcome our robot overlords and I'm okay with them. All right. I have always treated my Roomba with respect. Trying to get on the record early, huh? (laughs) (laughs) This is just a it's a recorded account of my philosophy. I'm, I'm, that's all I'm going to say. No, so the bioengineering approach is the idea that we find out ways to maybe genetically modify humans. It, it involves changing us on a biological level where we attain this sort of superhuman intelligence through that pathway as opposed through some form of machine intelligence. Okay, so before this was a cliche on the Internet, what was it? Where did this idea come from? Well, you know, it's it's an old idea. Like we've had we've had people talking about machines giving us the capability to to think better for more than a century. So if you go all the way back to the Industrial Revolution, there were people who were saying as machines were becoming more important in human activities, they were saying, look, this is allowing us to extend our ability to do to complete tasks and just imagine a time where those tasks aren't just physical, but also mental And so it was pretty early on that people were starting to have the very seeds of this idea. It wasn't so formalized as the idea of a singularity. That would come later. But it was already starting to kind of trickle into the minds of people at the time. Uh, The actual term singularity, uh, as it relates to a point beyond which humanity as we know it will change, um, was coined in 1958 by John von Neumann. Oh, okay. Oh, that's kind of interesting, like a singularity as in like a black hole or as in, right. like, at the beginning of the universe, like, you, you can't point look to, past that point. Right, right. That's I'm, that's where... Yeah. I'm just thankful they didn't call it Event Horizon. <laughs> that that show is... The movie's had enough references on the show, so... Uh, but, yeah, so singularity as a, a point that we are not able to see beyond simply because it's it's beyond what we are able to conceive of. You don't get into technological singularity until about 30 years later. And that's when uh, our, our good buddy Vern came up with this idea. Uh, he wrote an essay for Omni magazine, and he predicted we would, quote unquote, soon create superhuman intelligences that would transform our world in ways we can't anticipate. Because, again, we have human intelligence. So if you're talking superhuman, by definition, we cannot conceive of that. It's, it's beyond our ken. OK, where does Ray come in? Oh, you're talking Kurzweil. Ray Kurzweil. I mean, he's the big name in the singularity, it, at least as far as I can tell. He, When you say singularity, who do you think of? Ray Kurzweil. Yeah. Right. Like to the point that a lot of people on or some futurists on the Internet are kind of derisive and go like, you know, other people aside from Ray Kurzweil are working in this field. Thank you <laughs> yeah. very much. Yeah. Kurzweil published a very popular book about it. In 2005, he wrote The Singularity is Near or rather he got it published. And that book was extremely popular. It, it it really brought this idea of the singularity beyond a kind of niche audience. I mean, uh, my dad subscribed to Omni magazine, but I'm not sure that that many other people outside of the science fiction world really read that much of Omni. So suddenly getting this into more of a, a kind of a, a mainstream mindset 
made the the whole concept explode. Yeah, this took this weird nerd concept and went and had TV interviews and stuff about it. Oh, he's yeah. also so charismatic. Yeah, yeah, he's I mean, he travels the world giving talks about uh, you know, futurism. Uh, as well as other topics. And, of course, he's had his own incredible career. I've talked about him in the past on another show we do, Tech Stuff. Mm -hmm. And Kurzweil uh, has had a very long career in uh, everything from voice recognition to computer AI. And it's pretty cool stuff. So when he talked, people listened. And his prediction, which, as far as I know, he has not amended any time recently was that we would have the singularity by 2045. So in other words, when the year 2045 gets here, we will reach a time in human history where it will no longer be something we recognize. Yeah. The unfortunate thing about uh, predictions and dates in the future is you can't really know whether they're right until you get there. And that's a long way off, isn't it? That's deep, Joe. <laughs> yes, that is true. Both of those things you said are true. Uh, yeah, he actually also said that we would have computers that are as intelligent as humans as 2029. Uh, to me, that's, that's a really tricky prediction because, of course, you can argue that there are many ways that computers are much better at performing certain types of tasks than humans are. I mean, it's, it's sure. undeniable. Math. Right? Yeah. Like sorting through a, a, an incredibly long list incredibly quickly. Computers tend to be much better at it than people are. Sequencing a genome. Yeah. There are other things that humans are great at that computers are not so great at. Like natural language. Natural language is a great example. Or just being able to uh, see – like if I show you a cup and I teach you what a cup is and then I show you a totally different cup that's not – it's not the same design. It's different colors, different shape, different size. You still know what a cup is. You, you still, oh, that's a cup. Computers don't necessarily know that. You have to really start building in this software. It doesn't matter yeah. how powerful the computer is unless the software itself is able to also give the computer that that processing ability. Right. This is actually one reason that scientists and engineers are trying to teach computers to work like brains Yeah. Uh, in terms of the hardware itself. Because you can take a normal computer and with good facial recognition software, like the computer being taught how to recognize faces and what faces are, it can sort of, it can do a good job. It can look at your face and say, okay, but that's after you've taught it. Yeah. What's a lot harder is to release a normal computer onto the internet and say, learn what these images are. I'm not giving you any help. Uh, right. Associations, which are something that, that humans do very naturally are not something. I mean, it's, you have to program that and programming that is one of the more difficult tasks. Yeah. Of very time artificial consuming. Intelligence. Yeah. yeah. Even, even if you build the structure, it takes a lot of time. This is why, you know, we've talked about the semantic web and this idea of metadata and tagging all this data and building ontologies. I mean, these are very important so that a computer can understand how to navigate a world that we can navigate naturally. Yeah. So even though we have uh, agreement that computers are good at some things and that humans are better at other things, the, the thought of the people who, who propose this technological singularity is that computers are rapidly going to catch up to the areas where humans are better uh, at, at those tasks, and they're still going to be much better at the other tasks that computers are already ideally suited to. Yeah, perhaps the, the things that the computers are good at will allow them to rapidly become better at the things they're not good at. Sure. Uh, but not everyone agrees with the idea of the singularity. No, there, we've got actually a bunch of people on, on both sides of the issue, right? Right. L let's talk about some of these main 
figures in in sort of singularity thought or singularity studies and what they've had to say about this idea, because it's actually somewhat controversial these days. Sure, sure. So we've got Kurzweil. We've already mentioned him. He's probably one of the most visible uh, thinkers and speakers about the singularity. Yeah. And we should make clear when we talk about these people that being sort of on the pro-singularity side doesn't necessarily mean you think it's a good thing. Oh, right. A lot of these people actually think that it will be very negative and are looking at ways of mitigating that potential. Yeah. Right. But we're talking about people who sort of think that it's going to happen and think that it's going to happen pretty soon. Yeah, Mm -hmm. like within our lifetimes, or if not our lifetimes, the next generation's lifetime. Okay. What about Hans? Hans Moravec. Well, Hans Moravec is a, a Carnegie Mellon Robotics Institute adjunct professor, or used to be anyway. And uh, he says, of course, that the mind is the product of physical processes in the brain. So, uh, you know, this is this is, again, something that's argued among philosophers and uh, neurospecialists as well. But uh, his his premise is that if you have enough power enough computing power and enough sophistication with software that you would be able to replicate what happens in our our brains and thus give rise to a synthetic mind. Okay, this would sort of make sense if you're saying that your starting position is that the brain doesn't have anything magic in it. Yeah. Then why should it be that difficult to replicate what it does or even do better? And uh, on one level, uh, a lot of people say, yeah, that makes sense. But uh, but on another level, you may be trivializing exactly how complicated the brain and neurological processes actually are. Well, that's exactly why it seems like there might be something magic in the brain, right? Yeah. Imagine that there's not something magic in it. Well, it's so complex physically that it seems to lots of people like there is. Well, it's so. just like just like the idea of any technology sophisticated enough will appear as magic. Exactly. So, same sort of thing here. Any science that's complex enough is any going to system, seem... Any system, really. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Really. And that's sort of a testament to the fact that the brain may be a lot harder to replicate than we're giving it credit for. Right. Yeah. Oh, and it's and it's really big. I mean, don't don't let the relatively small size of our skulls fool you. There's a lot going on in there. Yeah. When you're looking at how many neurons the typical brain has, how many neural pathways, the fact that neural pathways will form and then start to kind of every time you think back on that memory, the same sort of pathway starts lighting up. And then sometimes the pathway changes a little bit, which means that our memories are not uh, entirely reliable, something that a lot of people depend heavily upon, like lawyers. Um, so, I mean, it's I mean, it's true. It's true. So but it's, it's an incredibly complex system and it works in a very different way than your classic computer system. Uh, now, one thing I want to say in defense of this idea is that even if the brain is very complex, if we can simulate the brain, I can't really see any reason why a machine shouldn't go way beyond the brain. I, because yeah. the, the brain is limited by all kinds of external factors like, you know, the size of the head when you need to give birth and things like that and competing with other uh, organs for developing resources. I think a lot of objections to this are not based on it's impossible. I think most people who object to the idea of of uh, simulating the brain aren't saying this is something that's never going to happen. They're saying this is something that if it happens, it's going to happen a really long time from now. Yeah, uh, the the more optimistic neuroscience people that, that I've seen 
talk about this have estimated at least 100 years, like absolute crazy minimum of I don't even understand what's happening anymore is 100 years. Because if you even look at IBM's Watson, which is one of the great examples of uh, artificial intelligence that we can talk about today, you know, that's the IBM computer that went on Jeopardy, defeated the two former Jeopardy champions, uh, seemed to be really, really smart. It was relying on thousands of processors running at an incredible speed in order for it to even compete at that level. And it was it was a fairly specific uh, kind of task. I mean, yeah, you had you had the wonderful uh, idea of this is going to encompass all human knowledge because you never know what the the categories are going to be. But it still was specifically to compete at Jeopardy, not to uh, hold a conversation and try and pass the Turing test, for example. Um, if for us to have a fully functioning mind, not just a brain, but a mind. It looks like it's going to have to be even more complicated than what Watson was. And it's not just the hardware that we have to worry about. Again, it's the software. If the software isn't sophisticated enough in uh, in the job of simulating the pathways that are in the brain, you can't really hope to simulate an organic mind. You might be able to come across create some other form of mind that we have never encountered I mean, that's still a possibility, and it's it's fascinating and scary all at the same time, but it's not going to be the same as an organic mind unless you're able to really create an insanely uh, sophisticated piece of software running on an equally insane, uh, sophisticated piece of hardware. So anyway, uh, that's my own personal <laughs> objection. So I think you already see where my mind goes. But next we have uh, we have Vern again, we have our science fiction author and mathematician, um, And he said that he would be surprised if the singularity doesn't show its head around 2030. So he's even more aggressive in his timeline than uh, Kurzweil is. That is 16 years away. That's hard to imagine. (laughs) It was only a couple of years ago that someone talked to him and uh, asked him again, like, do you want to revise that? And he says, I stand by it. Wow. I guess he might as well at a certain point. Yeah, you know, you're like, either it happens or it doesn't. I mean, you know. So it's, I guess it's at some point you just say, well, we'll, we'll just wait and see. Uh, although I do want to say that his, uh, concepts of the singularity were largely inspired by a mathematician by the name of I.J. Good, um, who is writing a lot about the intelligence explosion back in the 1960s. So, so, you know, uh, Werner, Werner might be a little bit on the fantastical side yeah, of I'd the say, argument. Yeah, I'd say aggressive, uh-huh, but, at least um, as far as singularity is concerned. But his, but his concepts are, are certainly based on mathematical concepts. Right. Though he's great fun to listen to. Uh, there's an interview that Wired did with him a mm-hmm. few years back. If you go and read that, he, he's just... Uh, he seems to have this great fluidity at talking about issues like but, this. A published science fiction writer, I mean... All the people I know who are published science fiction writers <laughs> are the most amazing people in the world. Hi, Dad. Uh, <laughs> then we've got Eliezer Yudkowsky. Yeah. He's um, uh, someone that was – is I always found it fascinating because of his thought experiment, which we'll talk about in another episode. Yeah. Or maybe we've already talked about it. <laughs> it's our friendly AI episode. Right. Uh, he, he's known in this field of, of AI and sort of cautioning the future of AI and discussing how to make it – Safe. Right. Yeah, yeah. He's particularly concerned that the the singularity, I mean, A will occur, but but B will be a species extinction level event. And uh, and so he's, yeah, working towards creating strategies for a sustainable singularity. Right. Which, again, very hard to imagine if you're talking about a point where 
you can't really predict what happens next. I mean, just alone, how do you prepare for something that's unpredictable? Also interested in creating the idea of friendly artificial intelligence is Nick Bostrom. Yeah, uh, he also, again, anyone who wants to prepare for a friendly kind of approach to this, you know, you, you kind of have to say this person is at least somewhat convinced that it's actually going to happen. I mean, you you wouldn't have a conversation about preparing for it. I mean, we're it's always better to prepare for something and not have it happen than to not prepare and it happens anyway. Yeah, I'd agree with that last part. I, I could say that you could be very interested in preparing for uh, safety in the case of the singularity without being especially concerned that it's very likely. I'm just not sure how many people would actually put forth the effort. You know, I mean, just yeah. knowing just knowing humans the way I do. But well, Nick, anyway, Nick Bostrom, he's given a prediction, right? Yeah, he's a director of the Future of Humanity Institute. Boy, that's a heavy burden in it. <laughs> if you're the director for the Future of Humanity Institute, like, so what's the future of humanity? Look, I'm working on it. OK, <laughs> back off. All right. But he was quoted as saying that there's less than a 50 percent probability that we'll develop some sort of super intelligence by 2033. So this sort of contradicts what Werner's prediction was, assuming that the singularity also necessitates some sort of super intelligence. Most of our definitions do involve super intelligence, intelligence explosion. That tends to be the way we think about uh, the singularity. I guess you could argue that if you could find some other means to constantly have the entire world changing so quickly that it's impossible to define it without using superintelligence, that would also be a singularity. Yeah, and so there have been some people who have been sort of pro-singularity in terms of thinking it's very likely to happen, but at the same time very against it in terms of what should happen, like Bill Joy, yeah. the co-founder of Sun Microsystems. He got uh, famous in this line of thinking when he published a an article in 2000 in Wired magazine called Why the Future Doesn't Need Us. And it was very pessimistic about the role of technology in the future of humanity. Yeah, he specifically was worried that we would develop technology that would be incredibly destructive and yet really easy to use. So imagine the equivalent of the button, right? The the whole idea that the button that you press and it launches a nuclear strike against another country. Now imagine that essentially... A, a, a sizable percentage of the human population has access to something that's its equivalent in being dangerous. It doesn't necessarily have to be nuclear. It could be whatever. Uh, saying that, you know, as technology gets more advanced, it's giving more power to people. And with that, with great power comes great responsibility. And so we have to be very cautious. And so he's he's advocated a let's not build those technologies, let's back off and just build the stuff that's going to help people and not the stuff that's going to wipe people out, which is easy to say. Exactly. I mean, a lot of the stuff that you build with the goal of helping people could eventually be used by accident (laughs) to cause problems. I I built this death scorpion to help humanity, (laughs) not destroy it. Or, you know, I mean, if if you create an AI that wants to make people happy, um, but as it turns out, what makes a lot of people happy is exploding other people's skulls. Uh, you've got problems. Or, that, would, that would be a bad example well, <laughs> of, of technology you want to push. Let's just say you create an AI that's designed to maximize the output of penicillin. Uh, but accidentally what it does by maximizing the output of penicillin is it harvests people's bodies in order to turn them into the constituents it needs to make penicillin. So this is like outbreak plus the matrix. Yeah. I got it. Okay. Well, 
Those are the, the folks, uh, there, there are more, obviously. There are a lot of people who fall on the side of the singularity is a thing. It's definitely going to happen. It may be good. It may be bad, but it's coming. But they're not the only ones in this discussion. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's a whole list of critics uh, who say that either it's not possible at all or that it's very, very not near. Yeah. So, well, yeah. Let's talk about the skeptics. So so we had the co-founder of Sun Microsystems in one corner. In the other corner, we got a co-founder of Microsoft. Is it Steve Ballmer? <laughs> no, not that Steve Ballmer was not a co-founder. He was an early employee, but he was the, in the sales department. I could talk all about Steve Ballmer if you really want me to. No, okay. we're talking about I Paul want, Allen. Although I, now I want to know what Steve Ballmer what, <laughs> what is to say Steve about Ballmer. Steve Ballmer is a robot. Come on. We know this. Developers, developers, developers. He was on that loop for a long time. It took a while to get him out of that. Okay, what about Paul Allen? Paul Allen, his argument, uh, which he made with uh, along with another computer scientist expert, uh, he posted a a, an article that was kind of a, a rebuttal of um, of Kurzweil. Kurzweil, yeah, yeah, and he said they that, had a few back and forths. I think, yeah, yeah actually, they did. Kurzweil ended up having a, a rebuttal of the rebuttal. But uh, Kurzweil strikes me as someone who who rarely um, rarely uh, resists the urge to have the last word. <laughs> but uh, maybe we'll find out for sure after the podcast goes live. <laughs> No, but Alan said that uh, that if such a thing as the singularity is going to happen, it's a long, long, long way off. And he made a lot of the arguments that I had kind of alluded to earlier, this idea that uh, creating any kind of, of machine intelligence that has intelligence in the way we think of intelligence, like on human level or beyond, is so far in the future as to be kind of a meaningless discussion at the moment. Yeah, uh, one thing that it brings up to think about the software limitations is that it's not just computers. Like you can make the most powerful computer that you could ever have. Yeah. And if it didn't have some kind of guidance, if it didn't have instructions on how to create intelligence, I, I don't know how you would achieve intelligence. It could just it. run Tetris way better than the other computers <laughs> could run yeah. Tetris. Yeah. No, that that's kind of Paul Allen's argument. And, and in fact, there's, uh, the the goofy uh, snarky fake law saying Moore's law you know you have oh, right right Moore, Moore's law says that uh, technology will uh, increase it will double in power right every two years every two years or so and Page's law in in contrast says that software will bloat uh, <laughs> twice as much <laughs> twice as much time. every two years so in other words your performance from one computer to flash forward two years in the future the next computer ends up looking the same. Because the software ends up expanding to take advantage of all those up op- all those those capabilities your computer has, but not in a way that would necessarily strike you as uh, as as noticeable. Like yeah, you would yeah. just think, well, this this computer runs this program just fine. Yeah, but it's not software like, gets twice as slow for every unit of. Uh, yeah, computer getting faster. Yeah, hardware so, increase. Right. So yeah, you preserve the status quo. It doesn't. You don't end up with this world of magical computers that can suddenly do everything. Although, you know, that's clearly a very tongue-in-cheek approach because if you do look around us, the it's it's undeniable to say that the computers of today can run programs that are far more sophisticated than what, like, I mean, I think back to my very first computer, which was an Apple IIe, and it would just fizzle and explode if I were to show it some of the stuff I can run on my phone these days. But the point is kind of is kind of made where this software sophistication isn't increasing at the same 
uh, pace as Moore's Law. And I and I do have to say that sometimes web pages load not quite as slow as they did when I was on dial-up, but but uh, approaching that due to say ad software. Okay, so we had uh, a sci-fi author in the pro corner. Do we have any sci-fi authors in the anti corner? Charles Strauss. He believes that the development in AI will be focused on creating reactive technologies and environments that respond to our needs rather than intelligent environments that anticipate things, make decisions on its own. I mean, even these reactive environments could anticipate our needs, but they're doing so in a quote unquote dumb way, not a smart way. Right. I think is this sort of an argument against what's called generalized artificial intelligence or artificial general intelligence? Mm. Meaning simulating the whole way a human brain works with the total freedom and range of thought as opposed to a, a limited AI that's really good at being like a human brain at one thing. Yeah, uh, sure, sure. It's the difference between a uh, video game character that can uh, competently follow you around and shoot your enemies versus a video game character, you know, taking that same grunt and having it cook you breakfast. It's right. Or to put it in, in terms of like a smart home You know, you might have a smart thermostat, which can, based upon a certain algorithm, anticipate what temperature you're going to want in your house, but it's not going to be able to do everything else that you need to do. You have all these other little elements, and together they can create an entire environment that seems really reactive and intelligent, but ultimately it's not really smart. It's just all following very specific sets of rules and not necessarily in a coordinated way. It's just integrated stupidity. Yeah. (laughs) Which I think that that should be the new industry buzz term. I think that they should be calling like Nest to the integrated stupidity. Pretty sure I pledged to a frat that had that as motto. Uh, At any rate, uh, go dogs. At any rate, um, (laughs) next we have Ernest Davis, who's a computer scientist with New York University. And Davis's argument is that the human brain and, and intelligence is far more complex than computer scientists tend to give it credit. Uh, that it is something that is non-trivial, that we have barely even scratched the surface, that even to have a conversation about intelligence usually requires you to focus in on a specific aspect of intelligence rather than just talking about general intelligence because it's just too broad a topic. Right. So this is sort of the other side of the coin that we already talked about with respect to Hans Moravec, right? Yeah. So maybe there's nothing magic in the brain. It's not... We're not unable in principle to reproduce it. It's just so hard. Yeah. Right, right. And, and the fact that some, a lot of futurists have really good understanding of how computers work, but a really poor understanding of biology. Yeah. Uh, is, is kind of an issue here. Uh, one, I, I don't think it was this guy, but, but I did read one neuroscientist who was talking about, uh, the, the genome. I mean, because, you know, people have said like, so we've uncoded the genome, so we know how to build a brain. So therefore, <laughs> we can build an intelligent brain. And it's like, no, 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 no that's well, not what that does. If I gave that same person just a list of ingredients in, say, Lucky Charm cereal and say, you now have the ingredients needed to make Lucky Charm cereal. Go and make it for me. <laughs> I doubt that they would come back with a bowl that looks anything like Lucky Charm cereal. It wouldn't even be ingredients. You'd be, I guess, giving them a list of atomic ratios. <laughs> That's true. I could go. I was I was oversimplifying just to show the the how absurd Absurdity, the argument is. Right. But true. It's, if it's I even more to, absurd than yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. need to make some carbohydrates out of them and. Now, and, and even if you that. build, even if you build that wetware, uh, again, like we said earlier, the emergence of intelligence from that wetware is a whole other question. Now, Joe, I know you spent some time 
looking over our next uh, <laughs> our next critic Lanier here, who uh, uh, as as you pointed out. Looks like the villain in Iron Man 2. Yeah, he does. <laughs> From certain angles, the uh, computer scientist and, and VR luminary, Jaron Lanier, looks like Mickey Rourke in Iron Man 2. This I, is true. This I is, can, this I is a white guy that. with dreads. I mean, he's, he's definitely got a look going. Uh, <laughs> he's and also a really intelligent dude, uh, you know, and again, VR illuminary. Like this is basically the guy who popularized the term virtual reality. Yeah, yeah. He's had a lot to do in the industry. He's had to live um, it down ever since. <laughs> <laughs> but he has some really interesting things to say also about the singularity. He he calls the entire concept of it cybernetic totalism. He refers <laughs> to it as a fanatic ideology and compares it to Marxism. Mm-hmm. Uh, his his arguments here are that the idea of the singularity is flawed because uh, brains and bodies and culture are actually pretty unlike computers. Um, also, because Darwin's theories of evolution don't apply perfectly to culture the way that a lot of futurists tend to speak of them as. Right. Um, and then also that whole thing with Moore's law that we were talking about right. before. He uh, he furthermore goes on to say that the very concept of the singularity is dangerous. This goes back to his comparison to Marxism. Mm-hmm. Um because he says that that the concept of the singularity denies scientific skepticism, strokes the com- the, the the ego of the general computer scientist, and um, furthermore encourages an kind of unrealistically rosy sense of predestination, which right. which all of which he thinks could lead to like a possibly apocalyptic separation of the haves and have-nots, the the technological and economic. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's one of those ideas about transhumanism is that if this ever does come to pass, we can easily imagine that if such a thing is possible, a very elite few are going to have access to it initially. So assuming we've gotten past those testing stages where we've had the people stop exploding when we put computers in them and now they're fine, uh, then you could imagine that really it's just going to be the super duper rich people who are going to have access to this, which makes them even more further distanced from the rest of us. And uh, yeah, there, there are a lot of science fiction stories that are predicated upon this. In fact, there are several that movies that came out over the last like 24 months that have the same premise. And I love his quote that... Arrogance is always a bad strategy in science. In philosophy, I suppose it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of, again, a little backhanded diss saying that, you know, this this whole concept of the singularity is more in the world of philosophy than science. Okay, speaking of philosophy, we've talked about the philosophical question before, and this is slightly separated from the idea of the superintelligence in terms of behavior and capabilities. But is it possible that this machine or this set of machines or whatever it is, this super intelligent framework could achieve consciousness or the experience of mind in the way we think of it? So this is the idea of a machine knowing that it can think, knowing yeah. that it is what it is and it is able to make uh, decisions based upon this information. And we have John Searle, who's another critic of the singularity. This name might sound familiar to you guys. We talked about him about the in the uh, Chinese room experiment discussion we had in a previous podcast. So this is the experiment where you say, imagine that you're sitting inside a room. Uh, there's a single door and it's got a little slot in it. Occasionally someone shoves a piece of paper through the slot and you, when you pick it up, it's got a Chinese character written on it, but you don't speak or read or understand Chinese at all. What you do is you then, you then consult an enormous book that gives instructions on what to do when you get a sheet of paper that has any particular Chinese character on it. You find the one that corresponds to the sheet of paper that was sent through the door. You end up scribbling something else down on a sheet of paper. You push that back through the slot 
then the question is, do you, as the person inside the room, actually understand Chinese? And people would say, well, no, you don't understand it. You're following these instructions, but you don't have any comprehension of what it is you're doing apart from when this happens, do this other thing. And so his argument is that you have to extend the same thing to machines, that they don't understand what they're doing. They're they're carrying out instructions, and that's it. The idea is that instruction-based computation can't by itself account for the idea of understanding. Right. Now, of course, we've also talked about criticisms of that particular thought experiment, the idea that if you take the system as a whole, as opposed to just the person inside the room, then would you say it understands Chinese? So in other words, you're taking into consideration the book of instructions and the entire apparatus that's involved. Maybe then you would have a more questionable approach. Like, could you say that that understands Chinese? Maybe not in the same way as a native speaker would, but maybe in a way that is semi-analogous, perhaps, uh, as opposed to the person inside. Because you could say, well, just think of the person as a microchip. That's not the full system. That's just one part of the system. Right. Okay. Anybody else critical of this consciousness question? No, everyone else loves it. Uh, Well, Roger Penrose doesn't. (laughs) Yeah. He's a physicist and professor of mathematics at Oxford. And he's thinking that we can't duplicate consciousness in machines because it depends upon non-computational physical processes, which we don't yet fully understand. So again, this is another approach of saying the human brain is so complex and we only barely know anything about it that we can't hope to simulate it or, or even create another mind based upon that little bit of information we have. We're just miles and miles away so that if there ever does come a time where we can do this, it's going to require a new understanding of physics that we do not currently possess. And because it's going to require that, and we don't, you know, you can't say like, oh, we've got a timeline and in 18 months, we're going to understand this. You can't say that. So he says it's it's impossible to predict. It's probably not going to be in the near future. Yeah. So I think something's interesting, which is that despite the fact that we've got lots of really, really smart people on both sides of this debate, yep. people say, The singularity, it's both possible and near, and people who say uh, possible but not anytime soon, and then people who say not possible. Despite all that, uh, you can see very clearly people are very quick to jump into one camp or the other on whether or not this is a good thing. Sure. Have you noticed this? Oh, yeah. That you you just dive right in. Oh, yeah, utopia. You know, just this (laughs) kind of Kurzweil kind of it's great vision Probably even more common is the dystopian idea that, oh, yeah, okay, it means we will be destroyed. Yeah, I I mean, my actual response is there's no assuming that we really do enter a world where we cannot predict what's going to happen next. Then you can't predict whether it's going to be good or bad. Exactly. That That's my point. I What I was trying to point out there was it's it's such a hard question about whether or not it will happen and what form it will take. How could you possibly predict without knowing those things, the kinds of effects it'll have? Now, I would say that it's very smart to be cautious. Sure. Oh, sure, sure. Well, and it's sort of like the old joke of of you don't know, like that coma that you could get in from a terrible accident might be the happiest time of your life. Right. Uh, and and <laughs> so you should open up door number three because I bet <laughs> door number one has a goat behind it. OK, so no one else is a big fan of let's make a deal. All right, fine. That's no, fine. I know about the let's make a deal problem. Yes, which we should probably do a podcast on at some point because it's an interesting What's problem. The future of it? Well, it's, <laughs> it's it's a it's an awesome uh, it's an awesome thought experiment. But okay. the uh, no, what I was going to say is that yeah, you can't predict it. I I think one safe prediction you could make, assuming again that we go to the the more fantastical 
version of the, the singularity is that human beings would ultimately cease to exist as we understand them today. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that the species would be wiped out and that no, no, uh, other kind of, uh, uh, remains of humans would ever, you know, exist. It would just be machines from there on out, but they might be transformed in some fundamental way where we wouldn't really refer to them as human beings anymore. Human beings would be something we would use as a term to talk about those guys who lived uh, before the singularity. Oh, right. That whole transhuman space baby, uh, super advanced X-Men kind of concept. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah, people, uh, take the idea of the singularity and then they attribute all different kinds of effects. You know, it'll mean immortality or near immortality. Oh, we'll be able to live forever. And then the next big engineering problem will be how do we stop the heat death of the universe so that we don't have to die then? Or there will be people who talk about how it means the end of work. Say it's going to lead to this this post-scarcity world where there's absolutely nothing we need. Right. This idea of going into sort of a, a Star Trek future where everything's idyllic and no one has to no one has to work. They can pursue whatever whatever they want to do. Not saying that it wouldn't mean those things, but I do think it's interesting that people are using this as a as almost kind of a fantasy fulfillment. Oh, sure. And, and I do, I, I don't think that we said earlier, but, but Kurzweil, um, seems very personally motivated from a, a really intense fear of mortality, of his yeah. own mortality. Um, I, well, I think that's safe to say. Yeah. I think that's not hidden. He's fairly explicit about the fact that he wants to extend his life. And, oh, absolutely. And, uh, and that, that comes from the, the death of, I think, his father at a relatively young age. Yeah. He has, um, he has spoken many times on his hope. That in within his lifetime, obviously, that we will have uh, either conquered death or if not conquered it, at least extended life indefinitely. Uh, and that he thinks that that sort of breakthrough is uh, like the singularity right around the corner. Now, obviously, if that breakthrough does happen or if it comes part and parcel with the singularity, then we will live to see this eventually come to pass. I mean, ultimately, I would say that if the singularity is indeed a, a possibility. It will happen. So if it is possible, it will happen because there's going to be someone who's going to do that next step that pushes it into that world. Uh, it's only if it's not possible that we won't see it happen. I don't think there's going to be a, well, a future. Who's we? We might not. In well, I mean, I mean, humans, humans, <laughs> right. not not we as in the Three people in this room. I'm not going to see it happen because I'll be washing my hair that day. <laughs> I keep it in a your, box. Your nanobot hair. No, it's in a box. <laughs> it's in a box. It's in my desk at home. I take it out occasionally. Try and wiggle out of it. I know exactly what you had in mind. You're like Kurzweil. You think that the singularity is going to give you hair. You know, long, beautiful hair. Shining, streaming. Yeah. Although, actually, that, that brings up a good point. I mean, it's not like any of us are not personally motivated to see this kind of thing happen it's i mean it's a beautiful idea and oh, i sure. and i totally understand the the seduction of that idea sure yeah now it's just when you start looking at you know it is amazing the stuff we can do today compared to the stuff that we could do uh, 20 years ago but i don't know that it's so amazing that it has us on track for this incredibly aggressive timeline that people like Werner and, and kurtzweil have in mind of, you know, by 2030 or 2045, we're going to have this uh, this this world that we can't even begin to describe right now. Certainly. Although if uh, those kind of aggressive timelines are leading to people putting real thought into it and, and real caution into it, then I think that it's completely worthwhile to have these kind of blowhards standing at the front of the stage. Of course, the caution is what we're going to talk about 
in our next podcast. Yeah, yeah. Nice lead in. Yeah. So, guys, stay tuned because we're going to talk all about superhuman intelligence, artificial intelligence, and how it will try to kill you. Uh, that'll be our next episode. And if you guys have suggestions for future episodes of Forward Thinking, you should get in touch with us. Let us know what you think. Tell us what you love about the show. Tell us what excites you about the future you can email us our address is fwthinking at discovery.com or drop us a line on google plus twitter or facebook our handle is fwthinking and we will talk to you again really soon for more on this topic and the future of technology visit forwardthinking.com Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where Anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more.